We went across the road and of course there was Black Elsie outside the front and she was screaming her head off, calling everybody names and actually hating the world. And Mum said, that's Black Elsie. And I said, who's Black Elsie? Mum said, you keep right away from her. If you ever see her, you run the other way. She carries a razor in her stocking. Not a razor blade, a razor in her stocking. And if, if, you, if you upset her or speak to her, she'll cut your face. I'm Jen Kelly from The Herald Sun and this podcast is the first in a series sharing the untold stories of some of Victoria's forgotten characters. When the Great Depression spread rapidly across the industrialised world in the 1930s, Melbourne suffered badly. The national jobless rate peaked at a staggering 30% in 1932 and thousands of Melburnians suddenly faced the dual humiliation of unemployment and poverty. Many lost their homes and were forced to live in slums in ramshackle huts, often without bathrooms or sewerage. It was during this time of immense hardship that the name Black Elsie would send shivers down the spines of little children like Phyllis McElveeny, who you just heard from. Mothers in Melbourne's inner northwest ushered their children across the road when they saw her, warning them to avoid her at all costs. Elsie Williams was a feisty and fiercely intelligent woman who had earlier made a name for herself as a talented singer. She'd toured Australia with the Fisk Jubilee Singers, earning rave reviews. Elsie even performed in the first Australian production of the Showboat musical in Melbourne in 1929, where it's thought she shared the stage with Oscar Lansbury, the grandfather of our former PM Malcolm Turnbull. Yet somehow Elsie ended up in her final years a violent drunk, living in a squalid shack at Dudley Flats, a shanty town that sprang up in Melbourne's west during the Depression. These days it's a forgotten patch of dirt and scrub in the shadow of the CityLink freeway, just across the Mooney Ponds Creek from the Melbourne Star Observation Wheel in the upmarket Docklands Precinct. But in the 1930s, Dudley Flats became a refuge for Melbourne's poor and homeless, with some 60 huts made mostly from scrap timber and corrugated iron hauled from nearby rubbish tips. From 1930 until her death in 1942, Elsie spent much of her time in prison for offences ranging from drunkenness to malicious wounding. Phyllis was only about nine years old when she first met Elsie in the encounter she just described outside a church jumble sale in North Melbourne. But she's never forgotten her mum's frightening warning. She cut the tram conductor's face and he, he was very badly hurt. Of course, it might have been, an, you know, an exaggeration, but she was put in jail and therefore she should have been put in jail because she cut his his face and cut his neck. Elsie terrified the local kids, but that didn't stop three of them trying to save her life in her dying days. Sometime after that first encounter, Phyllis saw Elsie one last time. It was wartime, times were tight, and Phyllis and two friends were down at the local tip, scavenging for treasures. Phyllis, Patty and Shirley found Elsie lying on a huge, smouldering pile of vegetable scraps and rubbish. She was bleeding, burned and badly bitten by rats. We just went over there on a Sunday morning, something to do. Off we went, have a look at the tip and there she was. 
there was this woman just lying there. She was on the whole pile of um, cabbage leaves and she was in a terrible mess, a terrible mess. She was, her skin was grey. She looked as if she'd been beaten, badly beaten, and she was bleeding on the legs and she looked as if she'd rolled in, in, rolled in fire. And she said she was crying, very crying, and she was hungry and she was thirsty and she wanted a drink. And uh, um, it was Patty and Shirley, they tried to comfort her and uh, see what they could do and they promised they'd bring, go home, get some food and some drink and bring it back to her. I just wouldn't even go near, I, wouldn't, I just, you know, backed off. Was that because you were so scared of her? Yes, I was. Well, yeah, because I, and not only that, she looked so dreadful. She was horrifying, really, you know. Mm. I was sort of horrified to look at her. She looked so bad. Yeah. She was so badly beaten. Mm. And, and could you see what was her face bruised when you say she was badly beaten? Swollen. Swollen, just swollen. But of course, I didn't, wouldn't look at her, so I turned away. And I, I, I really was, I feel ashamed now that, you know, I couldn't. I felt no, no sympathy, just, just horror. Do you remember any of the words that she no. said? No, oh, my man, my man punched me. She said, my man punched me. We had a fight, and. Uh, and she said the, the rats had come and eaten her, eaten her legs. She said she'd been there all night and she was in a bad way, a very bad way, and she wanted to drink. Uh, more than anything, she wanted to drink and she was very, very hungry. And could we get help? The three young girls promised Elsie they'd get help and ran home to fetch food and drink. It was a Sunday when Phyllis's mum always cooked scones, so she planned to bring some scones filled with corned beef. The other two girls raced home to Patty's place for a billy of tea and sandwiches. But when Phyllis's mum realised she'd been at the tip, she was forbidden from returning. Mum said, you keep right away, you keep right away. Yeah. And what was the next that you, what was the next thing that you heard about her? Well, when, I waited until after lunch and the, the girls had come back again and uh, I, I caught caught them out the front and they said that she was gone. And the ambulance must have come and, and taken her away because I told their mother and their mother was going to ring an ambulance. So that's how I thought, oh good. She's, she's gone in an ambulance and they'll treat her and stop the pain, stop the burns. Many people who remember Elsie have told me she was American. Phyllis even remembers she spoke with an American accent. But she wasn't. In fact, Elsie was born in 1901 in Bendigo to parents with an Afro-Caribbean background. But throughout her life, she claimed to be American for reasons that are not entirely clear. Elsie's life and her disturbing last days have been brought to life in detail for the first time in a beautifully written new book by Melbourne author David Sornig. It's called Blue Lakes, Finding Dudley Flats and the West Melbourne Swamp. Elsie's mother died when she was only six, leaving her father to raise six children alone. 
The family's home burnt down the same year, leaving them bankrupt. At 18, Elsie Carr, as she was then, married a sailor and became Elsie Williams, though he disappeared soon after. Elsie was only 20 when she first struck trouble with the law and was in and out of courts for soliciting and other offences. Yet for a time in her 20s, it seemed Elsie was on the cusp of fame in her stage career, touring Australia performing slave-era spirituals with the Fisk Jubilee Singers. Elsie also performed in a variety of shows at venues such as the West Melbourne Stadium, later known as Festival Hall. In one performance at the Mechanics Hall in Williamstown, she was billed as Elsa Carr, the Coloured Nightingale. But Elsie's hopes of hitting the big time were dashed when the Great Depression hit and the public stopped attending stage shows. As David Sornig tells us in his book, that's when Elsie wound up living in a humpy as Dudley Flat's best-known resident. We know that she was living with, on and off, it seems, with a, a man named Walter Fittis. She may have been uh, his regular partner. We, we don't know exactly uh, what the circumstance of that were. And they had their violent encounters with one another. Um, they, were both, they both seemed to be quite alcoholic. Elsie was certainly alcoholic. So through the years 1935-36, there are encounters between them where they either they are involved with violence, you know, fighting with other uh, residents of Dudley Flats, or even beating up each other and appearing in court because of those attacks. Certainly by the time we get to 1938-1939, um, she's not. she doesn't seem to be with Fidus anymore. He doesn't seem to be around that area anymore. But she is, you know, living itinerantly, uh, you know, either either in Dudley Flats or perhaps other places as well. Around, but generally around the North Melbourne, West Melbourne area, and that's where we get a lot of reports through the mid mid to late nineteen thirties of Elsie being encountered in the streets a lot a lot of the time around North Melbourne, and quite often very drunk. And some people found her very frightening, but other people found her really engaging, intelligent. And uh, they remember her great singing talents. She did express her, her you know, sense of shame at the state that she was living in as well. The fearfulness of Elsie is very much, you know, very much um, ground into, into children around that time. She becomes that kind of figure of, you know, this is how you will end up if um, you don't behave yourself. You'll end up like Black Elsie down on Dudley Flats. And that's the way people referred to her as, mm. as Black Elsie. For the past 76 years, Phyllis McElveney has believed Elsie was taken by ambulance from the tip the day she saw her and died peacefully in hospital. Phyllis only learnt the true nature of Elsie's death when she read David Sornig's book. The terrible truth is Elsie somehow survived two more days after Phyllis found her. She was found dead from natural causes at Dudley Flats, naked, with part of her arm and foot eaten by dogs or rats. Police were told that in the days prior, Elsie and her man had been on a two-day bender, demolishing four bottles of methylated spirits between them. A report in the Herald said Elsie's body was found under a couple of sheets of iron, placed over her as she lay dying by a man wanting to protect her from a pack of roaming wild dogs. When I was reading the book and I came on how she really died... I just put through the book away. I just, I just couldn't keep on reading. I was, I was so bad, so bad. One of the most fascinating aspects of Elsie's life is the strange friendship of sorts she formed with Jack Dyer, the Richmond great. While he was playing for the Tigers in the 30s, 
Jack Dyer also worked as a police constable in West Melbourne and regularly patrolled Dudley Flats. In his biography, Dyer described Elsie as the boss of Dudley Flats, even though there were blokes there who, in his words, were built like brick toilets. Elsie would often get drunk and wander off into residential streets, causing trouble. Dyer would get a tip-off, find her and walk her home. That led to a mutual respect, and at times Elsie stepped in to stop hard-bitten residents of Dudley Flats from beating him up. These are Jack Dyer's words, read by David Sornick. A big Scottish guy had gone berserk, five pick handles across the shoulders and you wouldn't back King Kong to beat him. He used to run off the rails when he was drunk, which was most of the time, and I had to go in and sort him out. All I had was my black truncheon, and I reckon he would have taken it off me and eaten it. We came face to face, and he was going to kill me. Suddenly, Black Elsie arrived on the scene with a backup, a big Negro. She confronted this yeti from the highlands and screamed at him, "'You leave Jack alone. He treats us decent.' About 40 of the flat's inhabitants had gathered, and not one of them liked coppers. But Elsie was fiery. I mean it. Don't you touch him. While it may seem surprising for a police officer to share such a mutually respectful relationship with a violent drunk, David Zornig believes it shows Dyer saw Elsie's true nature. The raw human being of Elsie was someone who was, um, you know, she was volatile. He would encounter her on the streets of North Melbourne and help her to get back down to Dudley Flats so she wouldn't be picked up for vagrancy. And it seems as if during those walks that they had together that they would have great conversations. So I think what Jack Dyer probably saw in her was were all the aspects of her humanity. So the you know the the violent parts and the and the uh, the shameful parts of her life, but also the real you know the really intelligent parts of her, the, the whole human. I think he saw. Thanks for listening. This podcast is the first in a series sharing the untold stories of some of Victoria's forgotten characters, brought to you by the Herald Sons in black and white column. Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth and I thought he was dead. Another one been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime.